we deserve to have places to show the rage, the grief, the loss, and to unnumb to the hundreds of years of what racism and white supremacy have done to us as communities of color, as black communities. And with that healing, we can figure out creative, brilliant ways to intervene, to stand up to justice, and to do it in ways that are whole, that hold our values at the center so that we're not just reacting and becoming the very thing we hate. I'm Andrew Seligson. I'm Emily Shields. And I'm Marisol Morales, and you're listening to the Compact Nation podcast. Hi. Hello there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's been a while. Um, I feel like that too. I was trying to remember, and you know, every day feels like several weeks at this point. So um, yeah, the fact that yesterday was one day <laughs> and Monday and just Monday yeah. really hit me hard last night. <laughs> yeah. I think everybody... Uh, several people I talked to like yesterday was just like exhausting or just there, there was just a different energy uh, level to it, which is, you know, understandable. Yeah. Where we're at. Yep. So we're going to start off um, today and, um, you know, welcome to, to our listeners and we've got a special episode for, for you um, today, but we're going to start off with a kind of reflection um, that we led um, with our um compact network um last friday and just sort of start off with that um reflection as we get into um hearing from nancy luna jimenez um who uh was part of the love um panel that we had as part of the virtual conference who, who spoke on that with us and listening and talking about kind of current events but um the question that we had uh, for our network and that we'll pose um, today is like, how has the last week, 10 days, two weeks um, impacted you? Anybody can start. Well, I can, uh, I'll start and I will say it's uh, spun me in a million different directions. I think, you know, the part of it has been the experience of things that one knows uh, are happening and that, you know, you, at least for me, I often go through my daily life without thinking about uh, the violence that people of color face, the fear. Um, for me, that is it's people in my family, it's friends. Um, and it's part of my privilege to not think about that every day. But then when one is uh, has that just front and center every moment, part of what it is is recognizing the tremendous pressure and stress that that puts on people who are facing that every day. And also it, it becomes a part of your your own thinking every minute. And the, the exhaustion that I often hear people of color talking about, I feel like um, has become an aspect of my life uh, in a way that's different from most other periods, in including other periods. And I don't know exactly why this is, where there's been a focus on this, where it has been part of the national conversation. There's just been an intensity and a, a sort of consistency um, in the last whatever. The, I don't even know how long it's now been, 10 days, um, that is different from other things I've experienced. 
there's also kind of mixed in with that um, some just deep frustration. Like I was thinking about the fact that I went to, you know, the first racial justice march I participated in was in 1983. And I don't know if there's anything really objectively better today uh, than then. And I think there's actually a lot of things that are objectively worse. Um, and so that's that's just hard to think about and hard to take. Um, and then also the, just the number of people who are putting themselves in harm's way because they care about this issue, uh, the extraordinary number of young people who are participating. I saw a video today from I think they were NASCAR drivers. I do not recognize yeah. NASCAR drivers uh, saying that it was time for white people to begin to take these issues seriously, to learn, to listen. Like that is different from other things I've seen. And so there's also some inspiration and motivation and kind of uh, that feels energizing. So that's that's why, yeah, I feel kind of turned around in all different directions. Oh. Yeah. Emily, for you? Yeah, similarly, a lot of ups and downs, um, you know, starting with, I also run Minnesota Campus Compact. And so the very yeah. direct, the very direct impacts on our team that live in the Twin Cities, our member campuses there, um, working with the, the presidents there on our response and their responses and, and kind of seeing all that um, take place and, and, you know, talking to people directly impacted um, as things were happening and, you know, participating and things like that and the police response and just lots of things. But then seeing that come to Des Moines and a level of uh, protests and demonstration that I'm not sure this community has ever seen on these issues. I feel like um, so there are things responses from the police that have been really disheartening, um, some that have been hopeful. Uh, it is, um, you know, tiring to see the same conversation over and over, but I've seen a lot of people commenting that this feels different. I don't know that I have enough history, um, to make that call myself, but I do feel that way in that um, one of the things that I loved that Nancy Luna Jimenez said at our conference was that white people need to be unnumbed. And I'm, I know there are more white people in, in my life um, acquaintance or closer uh, for whom that's happening. Mm. A, a lot more people, a lot more people, um, seeing and feeling things in a different way for the first time and wanting to do different things and learn. And, um, I, I have some excitement around that. Um, and then at the same time, I've been involved in trying to pass a racial profiling ordinance in Des Moines for over two years. And there was a really, difficult city council meeting about that yesterday. Um, two city council meetings that I've been a part of in a row have been interrupted with racist racial slurs and hate speech. Um, it just, just, just up and down. I don't know. I don't know what to think or what's next, but 
trying to choose to believe that this is a moment we can seize, must seize, and figuring out every day what that looks like for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, for me, um, a lot of different things. I think um, anger is probably the first uh, word that uh, comes to mind. Um, you know, anger at um, sort of what it took to, to create this awakening. Um, anger at the um, military militarization of the police force and how we're seeing them come down on peaceful protesters. Um, um, anger at uh, folks who are trying to sort of co-opt this people's movement uh, by being agitators and like um, starting things. You know, there there were a lot of reports on sort of the white supremacist groups. You know, sort of. You know, throwing, um, breaking windows or participating in some of the destruction. And I mean, I'm I'm glad that there's been an exposure of that. And some of those folks have have been arrested and there's like um, a separation happening between um, the the protesters and and the other folks. Um, And just even anger sort of within my own family, we're seeing um, sort of the anti-black rhetoric of coming out of, uh, you know, Latinos at at this point and, you know, having those be like Facebook uh, discussions on a family Facebook page. And when, you know, we are very, uh, mixed family in a lot of different ways, even 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 just being Puerto Rican, right? And 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 the way that this impacts um, different members of the family based on you know what skin skin color they happen to come out with, um, and um, and just the dismissal, right? Um, and, and the, the difficulty in sort of really bringing to the forefront uh, how uh, anti-Black racism is, is real in the ways that we need to, like, confront that. Um, but also, I think, hopeful, um, right? I was really exhausted and angry. Um, Chicago was particularly rough. Um, um, two weekends ago, um, the reaction from the mayor and protesters getting trapped downtown uh, with bridges raised and no access to um, public transportation to get out, uh, police go- going full force on, on them and agitating the situation. Um, but then also then the responsiveness of, of, of it. Um, so I think I've been impacted uh, you know, really personally, uh, in, in many ways. Um, and, um, and both understanding like the need to bring this to the forefront and, and, and talk about it, but also, um, feeling both the burden and the exhaustion of, of, um, leading that and thinking about the ways that we need to share that response, responsibility. So, yeah. But I think all important conversations, if we're actually going to create the change that, right, create the kind of democracy that um, allows for, for full participation and, and 
for me, what the most important piece of, of this moment is in the last kind of 10 days is like, how do we get to the real substantive action? So, and that's what we're going to hear about uh, a little bit today. So I'm really excited. We have um, an interview I did with Nancy Luna Jimenez, um, who is, who founded, is the founder of the Luna Jimenez Institute for Social Transformation, which provides training, facilitation, coaching, and keynote speaking um, to inspire individuals and organizations to deepen their commitment to social justice uh, and create transformational change. Um you know, her work for, for many years has been focused on, on racial justice. I've had the um, privilege of uh, being part of her trainings, um, you know, having her participate with us in Campus Compact at the virtual conference. And, um, you know, we will be having a training for her with her with uh, for network staff whenever we can actually be in person together. Um and so really excited to, to have her, uh, to sit down with her for, for this conversation and sort of think about the ways um, that, um, you know, we can begin to um, address um, racism, um, you know, in our country, in our organizations, in our institutions, in, in our communities. Um, I will say... Um, one of the things that uh, I appreciate about Nancy is um, the way she centers kind of love and goodness and people's humanity um, at the center of her work, um, which um, is not a very easy thing to, to, to do. And um, but yeah, we will listen to that conversation now and um, we'll engage in some more reflection and conversation when we get back. evening Nancy hi there yeah so we are I don't know a few weeks out from our um, national virtual conference that we had in the session on um, love and equity that we had um, and we get a chance to talk together again for our compact nation podcast so welcome Thank you. It's really great to be back. We had such great response from that conversation and I enjoyed it so much. I wanted it to go on for hours. So I feel really grateful to get this intimate space and time to talk with you. Likewise, likewise. Yeah. And boy, do we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> a lot of stuff has been happening in our world, in our nation. Uh, yeah. Um, and a lot of it has to do with. Uh, what we started our conversation with uh, at the at the virtual conference. So, um, you know, I want to sort of take this time to both acknowledge um, the way that folks are um, expressing their participation in democracy by um, calling out issues around uh, police brutality and um, the treatment of um, the Black community in our um, society and, um, you know, that this is happening across the country and sort of it, it feels different than other things that I've kind of experienced in, in my lifetime. And so 
I'm both um, exhausted, right? It's It's been heavy, but also like inspired by um, the unity and the, the calls to action and, and the movement um, of, of, of people. So yeah, how are you with all of this? And I am many things. Um, you know, I think I had a really hard part this last weekend and realized that I, I mean, even though I do this work for a living, like it is not just a living, it's like life, it's a practice, it's a purpose, it's what I do. And I was feeling ineffective, ineffectual, um, overwhelmed, um, and wanting to just numb out, like, but like in a deep, way of like, if I never get out of bed, that would be great. Or if I went on a hike and never came back kind of thing. Um, And I think I was sharing with you earlier, like I struggle with sugar, like sugar is, sugar is the thing um, that got my mother through a pregnancy. She wasn't prepared to have with me. Um, I was born in the middle of the last major national uprising in 1967 when 160 cities were burning and the National Guard was in Detroit and my mother was in the state ward with other mothers, mostly all black mothers, all on assistance. And I literally felt thrown back, like, I mean, viscerally into that time and that level of helplessness and hopelessness and Um, Sugar was the lifeline. Like I was a gestational diabetes baby. Um, I was born addicted to sugar and I found myself wanting to reach for copious and amounts of sugar. And I haven't eaten sugar in months. Um, So, and then I just, I binged on it and I was like, oh, this is really early. And then I was able to use, you know, the practice that we use, the healing practice um, of listening, of constructivist listening and really getting to get at what was underneath this feeling for me. And it really broke open so much for me. And then one of my sister friends sent me an email um, and just said, we're not okay. Like, we're just not okay. And it was just enough of an understatement that just like, I, I couldn't speak to it directly, but there was a way that just snuck in and it was like, no, I'm not okay. We're not okay. This has never been okay. Um, and I, it's okay for me to say I'm not okay. Like, I Mm -hmm. think there's this place where it's like, you have to keep holding it together. You have to keep thinking, you have to keep, you know, being rational in the face of irrationality because racism and white supremacy is above all irrational. We know that we've known that all our lives. Um, and I just was like, I just, I'm not okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's um, the sentiment of so many and the sentiment in our our nation, right? It's like, we're not okay and we can't keep on pretending we're okay or that we've got this figured out or like ignore it, you know, brush it under the table. Like, you know, the, the words of MLK about like riots being the language of the unheard. And, you know, just that kept on ringing uh, for, for me um, in these past few days, especially here in Chicago, 
with so much stuff happening in the neighborhoods and, um, you know, both the ways that like a people's movement for justice has been infiltrated. Right. Um, and then, um, also the military militarization of, uh, of the police and, and the, the treatment of, of peaceful protesters and, um, you know, just kind of the calls for um, accountability. I mean, right. Um, and so it's the heaviness of it. It's, and I think for me, it was like the back to back, right. It's like the Mod Aubrey, uh, the Rihanna Taylor, the incident in, in Amy um, Cooper. Yes. And then this, and it was just like, ja. Mm-hmm. enough, enough. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's a global enough, like right. the protests, the demonstrations, it's been unbelievable to see, you know, from London to Auckland to Berlin to, to Puerto Rico, you know, mm-hmm. our family's homeland. I don't, I'm not sure how much you are following the movement to end the erasure of our black heritage. You know, there's, yeah. there's a, a racialization conversation that has been happening in Puerto Rico since colonial times under Spanish colonial rule and the Colectivo Ile and all the work they're doing, the vigils, mm-hmm. the visibility of our, you know, Afro-Latinidad has been so hopeful yeah, um, I agree. and, and overdue. I mean, really overdue. Um, but thank goodness there's now, I mean, there's a global alliance around blackness that I think I haven't seen in this way before. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And that, I mean, as heavy as and exhausted as I am from that, like that also feeds a lot of like, now is the time to shift, right? Like, how do we, how do we like take that and, and energy and start doing the work, start, start shifting to an anti-racist, um, you know, frame of, frame of mind, frame of work centering in in our practices and at our institutions and in our organizations so i'm really excited about what that will bring um but you know it's it's weighed with like just the hurt that um we feel like that is being expressed um you know right now and i think you know i think the mlk quote if i can come back to it is Mm -hmm. I really, it's so powerful for me because, you know, it's the core work that I do. And it's like looting is unheard. Like where people are unheard, they loot, you know. And I think there's really a misunderstanding that we all need to be heard. And without the listening and without the healing, this is how it expresses itself. But it also expresses itself with me binge eating on sugar. And it expresses all of us like overworking and being in this exhausted state and snapping at our children and like all of the places. I mean, I've had so many calls this week with clients, African heritage people on the call and they'll just be like I'm sorry I'm just not myself today like I just like and you can feel like it, there's just this fog the operate we're all operating in and it's like there's no place to go you know yeah. and I feel like what we're seeing on the streets you know is it's you know I think you've heard me use this metaphor of you know our current or what has been for the most part our um 
forest wildfire maintenance policy, right? Which is we suppress all burns, right? You suppress all burns and then you have all of this kindling, all of this underbrush in these forests that when there's a spark, you get a super wildfire. And I feel like part of what white supremacy and the policies of a racial, you know, injustice and oppression have said to us, we're going to oppress you. We're going to dominate you for hundreds of years and you can't show a thing. You right. have to, in, you, and we end up, we internalize it. It is not a coincidence that all, all of the public health issues that we are seeing hit our black communities are the results of racial weathering, are the results of internalized racism that has happened for years and is on a cellular level in our bodies. It's not about making good and bad choices. The whole choice right. narrative is inside white liberal supremacy. Um, and so when you light that match, when that spark hits that fire, we've got to, it's got, it's going to burn. It's a super wildfire. It's like, mm -hmm. that's all there is. It's like all of that that's been suppressed. It has nowhere to go. And so it burns us up and it burns us all up. I mean, this is right. the thing. It's like, we need practices and this is not a self-care. Self-care is inside a capitalist framework for like individualism and, you know, and, and escape and frankly, comfort right. and escape. But I'm really talking about this as a social justice practice that we deserve to have places to show the rage, the grief, the loss, the, and to unnumb to the hundreds of years of what racism and white supremacy have done to us as communities of color, as black communities. And with that healing, we can figure out creative, brilliant ways to intervene, to stand up to justice, and to do it in ways that are whole, that hold our values at the center so that we're not just reacting and becoming the very thing we hate. I really, I remember Lillian saying that and my mentor, Lillian Royball Rose, who I know you know, in the very first workshop that I went to with her when I was 26 years old, 26 years ago, there were many things she said that I kept from that workshop. But one thing she said was, when we don't heal our hurts from oppression, we become the thing we hate. And when we become the thing we hate, the thing we're trying to stop, the contradiction of that has us drinking ourselves, drugging ourselves, working ourselves, eating ourselves to death or any variation of the above. Mm -hmm. And you know, I can't tell you on my feed, like reading from my black sisters, like I'm going to really enjoy this ice cream tonight. Like I'm so pissed. And it's like, who are we helping yeah. when we self-destruct? Right. We are helping the system to perpetuate. And, you know, so there's versions of like, we quietly eat a hot fudge sundae or we go burn a building or we, you know, to be honest, the protests are inspiring and horrifying. We are still in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. And there is no way that this in two weeks is not going to involve more of us on respirators, ventilators. I'm, I'm heartbroken for that as well. And I, I know this is like a choice between not living and not living. Like I'm, I get this. This is no, no choice. And I'm still heartbroken. Yeah. It's a... Uh... It's an interesting time. I don't, I don't know. And, you know, I think that, again, like what we're seeing in, in terms of response to, to this, um, 
is is going to be what it, either what fuels and takes us to a different level of being and thinking as a nation and really embodying you know those those ideals that we say are for everyone in word but indeed we have not and never demonstrated that and so you know maybe this is is our time to to really create that demonstration and 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 make that happen and that's my hope for for um all of this when it comes out and that um it is enough to activate and mobilize um people to to be what we can be when right Mm -hmm. um but we shall see shall see Mm Mm-hmm. So um, for those listeners who are um, hearing you for the first time, can you talk a little bit about who you are and the work that you do? I would love to. Yeah. Um, well, a couple of things to know about me. Um, I think it's important to know who my people are. That's usually how I start. Um so I am um, Afro-Boricua, Puerto Rican on my father's side. From He was from a small town in the northwest corner of the island called Aguada. And on my mother's side, indigenous Mexican. And um, born and raised in Detroit. I think you got the born part, but also raised there. And um, really came into my activism Um, mostly in college, and it was the time of divestiture from South Africa under the apartheid regime. And so um, there was a lot of, for me, uh, awareness around the internalized racism that we ran against each other. Um, But a lot of my energy, because I couldn't bear to look at that. I couldn't bear to acknowledge that I didn't speak Spanish, that I didn't feel as Puerto Rican as the next Puerto Rican or as Mexican as the next Mexican. And so I turned a lot of that energy outward, which, you know, I kept thinking that making white people feel bad was going to end racism. So I spent a lot of time trying to make white people feel bad. Um, I get it. Like, I get the rage that I was being driven by. Um, But it took and going to Lillian Roy Rose's workshop that I mentioned at the YWCA in Watsonville 26 years ago, this last August, this August, um, where I really understood that my pain was running through my activism and that the hurt, unless I healed it, would continue to infect my work. And so I asked her to work with her. She was politely declining at the time because I was, quote, uh, not mature enough, quote, not old enough. I think she had a different vision. She didn't really want to take on a 20-something person. Um, but eventually she did say yes. And we worked together for 20 years. And there's so much that I learned from her and so much that I bring. But primarily, I mean, the radical pieces of the work that I carry forward from her legacy and her mentor's legacy, Erica Sherover Marcuse, I would say um, is that emotional discharge and healing is the missing piece of racial justice. I would say that adultism, which is the systematic and institutionalized mistreatment of young people, is the training ground for all other oppressions. Um, It is the idea that um, oppressions demean and devalue all human beings. There's no one benefiting, so which is why we don't 
ascribed to the privilege narrative, which is everywhere and that we think re, um, reinscribes and reifies white supremacy itself. Um, and so 26 years ago, I started a business um, that I didn't really intend to run as a business. I just wanted to learn from Lillian. And I'm so grateful um, for all the ways that she believed in me and set up this opportunity for me to do this work, which has fed and nourished my spirit um, over these last 26 years. We expanded from doing workshops to doing keynotes and coaching and facilitation, mostly around emotional healing and racism and social justice work. So I did a lot of, I've done a lot of work with environmental justice and citizen advisory committee facilitations and historical journeys around people's equity journey, organizational equity journeys. Um, and in this last period, we have pivoted and offer are offering more and more programs online. Um, we've made a decision that we will not gather groups together for the workshops that we think only make sense to do in person until there is a vaccine that is accessible and available to everyone. So this is a social justice issue for us. Right. Thank you. And so in all of these years, like doing the work you do around um, racial justice, you've worked with individuals and organizations, institutions, college systems. Um, how have you seen your work evolve? That's a really good question. I mean, there's it's a funny thing. Our our work has evolved more in the ways that we're able to talk about it more directly, what we do. Um, I think initially, I mean, Erica Ricky was ahead of her time. I mean, she was talking about racial healing 50, 60 years ago. Nobody was talking about racial healing 60 mm -hmm. years ago. No one. I mean, we were still at the baby stages of affirmative action, EEO, forget around whiteness, forget around oppressor material racial healing work. Um, so I think where I feel like I've evolved is I've just gotten bolder about saying, if we can't deal with the feelings part, we can't change this work. And I think I've gotten increasingly clear as valuable as I know trauma informed language has been and empowering. And I really want to honor the leadership of my indigenous brothers and sisters around this. I still feel like that language reinscribes this as mental health oppression. Okay. And I, you know, I heard a young um, Black Lives Matter activist speaking about like, you know, don't blame us for 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 our mental illness because of racism. And I was like, girlfriend, we do not have a mental illness because of racism. We have valid rage because of racism. And the continuing to pathologize and diagnose and drug for the profits of massive, you know, pharmaceutical conglomerates, industries, um, concerns me. Yeah. And I think it's what kept me quiet around talking around feelings and why feelings, we need to get them out and we need to get them out in ways that are healthy and whole and that it's not a mental health issue, quote unquote, it is a social justice practice. Absolutely. So you know that, you know, Campus Compact, our work is focused on civic and community engagement, sort of the at higher ed's uh, public purpose and higher ed working with um, communities. So thinking about that, um, you know, I'm interested in your thoughts on, on that and the anti-racism uh, work or the racial justice and racial healing work when you have institutions like higher ed institutions, sending students out to communities, 
um, and all the dynamics that um, sort of are connected to to that. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't I, I don't want to jump to a bunch of assumptions because I know there's been a great amount of effort put into bringing in students of color to be playing these roles in communities around um, service. Um, but would you say that that's the main profile of students that are involved in the programs? Uh, I mean, I think we still have a dynamic where you have um, uh, predominantly, uh, you know, predominantly white students going out to predominantly uh, black and uh, Latino communities or communities of color, uh, marginalized uh, communities. Um, and I, th- I think there's, there has been um, evolution in the field to talk about things like critical service learning and thinking about a social uh, change orientation, um, you know, asking the big questions around like, the why and some of that criticality. Um, but I think there's still a lot more to, to go. Um, and I know like even for my own research, um, we also have not, um, typically included like the voices and experience of students of color in engagement. So being able to, what my interest is in creating more space for, those understandings and, and learning about what um, students of color are, are experiencing in, in their um, community engagement. But I feel like there's not enough preparation for sort of discussions around race um, and racism in, in the classroom. And uh, and comfort. I mean, I think that that's, there's a Right. And so if faculty or instructors don't have um, enough background, training, comfort in these conversations, then it's hard to lead those and create those spaces in classrooms to to ask questions about, you know, the why. And so Mm -hmm. we do a lot of reflection work, but, um, you know, I'm not sure how how many. Uh, create spaces for those conversations about, uh, about race. So, I mean, I think there's so, there's so much here. I mean, I think it's the model itself is probably embedded with, you know, savior, paternalistic um, patterns. And I think when you layer the race component on, you know, then it, if it's mostly white students and they're going into mostly communities of color, I think it's genuinely hard to do a radical model built on peerness. It, it sort of reminds me of a mentor-mentee relationship. It's like by definition, once you get into that dynamic, you have a hierarchy that's established. And so I know lots of people have been and are curious and committed to disrupting that inherent power dynamic in the setup of the structure. And I know you and Compass Compact are, are, are committed to that. So I want to just highlight, like, there's this, um, I read this really, um, this moment in this book where this guy was like, I was playing Monopoly 
And I just didn't like who I became when I played Monopoly. It was like, I wanted to buy stuff and beat people out and become a capitalist. And it was like, and I realized like, I just needed to stop playing Monopoly. Like there wasn't a way that the system was going to work. Like the game just is the game. Like, and so once you're in it, you're going to become the person that wants to win at Monopoly if you're playing the game. And so I think it's one place that we all need to pay attention to when we come into a system or a structure that's set up this way to pay attention to what are the patterns that are going to get triggered just by virtue, right? We're stimulated just by virtue of the setup of the system. And I think most of us don't come in aware about how those patterns are going to get re-stimulated. So I think that's one layer of awareness. Um, I think another layer of awareness, and I, I really um, I'm wanting to find this quote, um, which I don't know if I'm going to be able to find. Um, so this is a, um, there's this quote that I'm taking from a conversation um, that uh, Robin D'Angelo was having um, that was uh, on COVID-19 and racially, racial embodiment of white supremacy. And this, this really struck with me when she talked about white progressives and that's a very particular slice of, mm-hmm. of whiteness and the idea that you can feel sorry for a group of people of color, people targeted by racism when you're white actually grants white progressives social capital. And I, I, I mm-hmm. really found that to be a powerful that, and she, and I'll quote her here. Um, there is social capital in quote, I feel sorry for you. And she's speaking as a white woman. It gives me a precious sense of benevolence. It's both patronizing and condescending, but it also grants me moral credibility to, um, and returns me to my goodness through this benevolence. Oh, that's deep. <laughs> yeah, very deep. And so if I can pull the thread through on this one, yeah. Um, in our work, we don't think that white people can be effective allies in any context, whether it's service learning or in Black Lives Matter allies or in any context until they are completely grounded in their goodness. Because the minute their goodness comes into question, the patterns that get tripped are going to be ones where they try to be better than another white person, which is, what is that? It is simply an embodiment of white supremacy. So this idea that white people are trying to outrank each other is premised on the idea that they feel bad about themselves. They can't tell that they're good because the racism and the patterns of racism that run through them and through their families have gone unhealed for generations. And I, I had a coaching uh, client this, this afternoon, white woman, and she said, it's interesting, nobody taught me white supremacy. It was just confirmed throughout my life. And yes, and we said yes. And if you'd had it taught to you, then you could have argued it because young people want to argue this stuff. Like they question the injustice. But when it's simply just being imbued and in, and inhaled and confirmed, it's almost like there's nothing to push against. And so you're both internalizing this, these messages, misinformation of your white supremacy, even at the time 
that you don't, you know that you can't possibly be good because your humanity is inherently compromised simply by being put in the position of oppressing other people. And so your question really brings me back to two things. One is we have to get white people discharging on how compromised they feel that they are inherently losing a part of their humanity by virtue of being white. And I would say the other piece is we must start, and this is going to be challenging for us as people of color, is that we need to reflect and build back up people, white people's sense of their goodness. And that was, that was the thing I wanted to fight Miss Lillian Roybal Rose on at every turn, Marisol. When I saw her do that in the workshop, I was like, what are you doing? And I was mad at her and I was acting out like a fool as like a workshop participant. And then, and then I came back and then I came back and I came back and I was invested in making white people feel bad and get it that they have destroyed my communities, my lives, the earth. I mean, you name it. And it was really watching her radically shift the paradigm that I began to understand, oh, if I really want to end racism, white people can't come from guilt. They can't come from shame. And they can't come from needing to be, quote, better than other white people because inherent in that is pretense. Inherent in that is internalized white supremacy. Lillian, I, I think I mentioned Lillian Dud. Um, she's an educator and she worked with middle school students, mostly in Watsonville, California, which is a primarily immigrant Mexican community. And she would get student teachers that would come into her classroom. And mostly they were white, mostly middle class students who had done their teaching, their student teaching at Aptos High, which at the time was a pretty affluent high school in also in Santa Cruz County. And when she would start to get to know these student teachers that were in her classroom, these white students would say, oh, I'm so glad I'm here in Watsonville. You know, I'm so glad I'm here with these children who have real problems. You know, they have real issues. Um, and then they would say, it's not like the students at Aptos High where the only thing they have to worry about is what color car they're going to get for their 16th birthday, you know, very disparagingly. And I remember Lillian saying, if I could have stopped them in that one moment, and she said, and eventually with the relationship, I was able to say this, but if I could just cut in that moment, I would have said, stop that, don't do that. If you can't see and honor the pain in white children, you will always condescend to brown children, don't do that. And I think there's a way that the way that we talk about racism in this society, we don't acknowledge that white people have lost a part of their humanity and live in deep amounts of pain. And there's no place for them to process that, to work through that, to heal with that. And it doesn't need to be with us. And in fact, it really shouldn't be with us unless we choose for it to be for with us. And I can tell you, Marisol, like when I started this work, I was like, I'm going to be working with all these people of color because we're going to end racism together. Like when I signed on to this job 26 years ago, I was really clear. I was going to, we're going to bring this into the communities of color and we're going to do this work. And then I was like, oh, like, I don't know, probably 10 years in, I was like, oh, if I really want to end racism, I'm going to be working with a lot of white people. And it has been revolutionary in my life to make a decision to think about and how to support white people to heal from their pain. 
it has totally shifted my relationships. And more importantly, it's empowering for me. And I know that that is not a place most people of color have the resource, space, energy, healing to do. Um, And many people of color have said to me, like, I am not interested. And I say, power to you. Grace be with you. Do your path. And then I've had people of color come to me like, I want to learn that. Like, Mm -hmm. I can tell something would shift for me if I could do that. And I say, then come on board. Let's do it. I would love a cadre of people of color committed to leading white people in their healing because there is something profound for us in that work, not for them, not for them, but for us. I've also, I've always found that fascinating and a little bit challenging, <laughs> as you know, and I've gone through, okay. through the work. I, not for everyone. I not for everyone. <laughs> but I mean, I think the difference is like when you, when you're in a position to make the choice to, to do that versus oftentimes like being expected to do it as one of the few people of color in leadership or, um, you know, students of color often experience this in the classroom when it's like, Oh, you know, tell me what it's like for you all. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, the difference between having a choice to, to engage in, in that versus, uh, not having that and what that, what that, that feels like. Um, but I, you know, I, I think it is, it's a powerful shift, um, in the way that we, we think about that. Um, so I'm going to ask along those lines, like, um, so how do white people work with white people around also like doing this work? That's one question. And then how does your work then differ with the uh, participants of color in your, um, your trainings? Yep. I think those are great questions. So, um, I mean, I think I'm learning, this is a big place where my work has evolved. I'll say this in this last period. So, um, I think there's very powerful work that white people are doing with other white people in white spaces. And they're literally called white spaces where white people can get together. Um, I think it's a tricky place to be when you're, and I have, I have seen this with white people where the so-called woke ones try to beat up the ones that are unwoke and they call that white healing. And that is not white healing. Um, that, that is white shaming. That is white supremacy internalized and playing out on each other. And that is not the plan that I'm on. Um, so there are only one, there's only one other space that I'm aware of that doesn't, head down that path, which is called the untraining. Um, And they're based out of Oakland and they do amazing work. And Kathleen Rice, one of my associates does a lot of work with them. And, um, and it's, it's been powerful. Um, And I think that there's examining whiteness and whiteness patterns, white identity. I think there's work on healing from the loss, disconnection, isolation, pretense, you know, internalized superiority. There's a ton of work that needs to happen for white people. And then there's a different body of work um, where we enter into an ally space. And I feel like that is work I'm very curiously exploring now because there's, 
there's a set of like, there's a body of information that white people simply do not have about our different struggles. And you can't just say like, I'm an ally to end racism and not know the difference between how natives have been oppressed and the policies of genocide and the the policies of exclusion and anti-Chinese and anti-Japanese sentiment and what those histories look like. You, You can't just say, I'm an ally to all people of color and not have done a body of work on understanding this very specific ways and distinct ways that genocide, colonization, slavery, exclusion, white supremacy, slavery have played in these communities. And slavery in Latin America, for those of us who are immigrants in the Caribbean, played out really differently under Spanish colonial rule than French colonial rule than English colonial rule. And when you come as an arrogant USer who thinks they know everything about slavery in the US context and you fail to learn or understand the implications for those of us who are not from the English colonial slavery context, you, you miss us and you reinforce an arrogance of USer um, uh, oppression. And so I, I'm really interested in this um, ally space and what it means. And I'm working actually right now to train a group of, of allies to Mexicanas and Chicanas. And it will not just be white people. It will be all people of color. And this is the other thing. I feel like ally space, part of how white supremacy has worked is it's like dominated by white people. It's like, Mm -hmm. no, I get to be an ally. I get to be an ally to Jews because I'm a Gentile. And in that case, I'm an oppressor. I get to be an ally to Muslims. I get to be, and I can lead here and I can be visible. It's this idea that somehow the white people are the allies is also inside the white savior, white supremacy complex that I think we, we keep deferring as people of color. And this idea, I, honestly, I don't think we can move out of our, into our full healing as people of color until we make a decision to be an ally to another group where we are a non-target. Mm-hmm. And so that is a different body of work. And so that's the place where I'm really curious about exploring and what it means for me to take charge of training a group of allies including training white people to follow the lead of people of color who are not Chicanas and Mexicanas to be allies to me. So that's where my mind and my experiments are right now in my leadership. And I'm really learning a lot about how that's different than the body of white work um, that I think all white people need to do as a baseline, but it's not. And I think what happens a lot is white people want to jump to the ally work because they want to be the good white and they never do the, the core emotional healing work around their whiteness and the loss and the cost. And the ally work is fundamentally different work um, than that work. And then I would say with my people of color groups, and I've already foreshadowed that a little bit. So I'm wanting to work on a number of levels there. Um, And I think you know this. I've been really committed to looking at the ways that internalized anti-blackness is played out in the Latino community. Um, And you know that because I've been targeted by it in my own family. And it has deeply impacted my sense of belonging. and connection um, because of the internalized racism um, towards my African-ness. Um, and so I think that was a big part of where I put my energies initially. And then, you know, realizing that this anti-blackness is running across the gamut. Mm-hmm. So um, everywhere, everywhere. And, and I'm committed in communities of color, people of color, like we just don't have any spaces to do this together that don't mix it up with black folks like and it's a different experience um, both for the colonial legacies that i mentioned but also because our experience of racism is different based on skin color and hair and phenotype so um so that's where a lot of my work is going now and i think the other piece is honestly is 
working with people of color who want to work through a set of material or patterns where they want to lead white people that, you know, I, I think they're, this is a vision of work that I have. Um, and I'd say somewhat connected to this, and this is really about laying oppression and climate change and U.S. or oppression is that there's a way that we, in, we as people come in the United States have really failed to understand the imperialist patterns that we carry in relationship to our, even our family members, brothers and sisters outside the U.S. And I think we want to skip over that because we're like, well, we're all the same because we're all targeted by racism, but we're not all the same. And the amount of access and also the compromise to our humanity for living in this imperial nation, this colonizing nation, um, is work that we have not been able to do as a community of color. We keep thinking that's white people's work and it's not. It's ours. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so much. I, I feel like uh, I'm part of an association and, um, and, you know, we're struggling with, with that too, or we're exploring that. So in, we have historically been, um, an international organization, I'm talking about Ireside, so we've been an international organization, but very U.S. focused. And so we're thinking about how do we actually live into being an international organization and what that means. Uh, and I'm beginning those conversations, which I think will be rich and will fill the field and mean that we have to um, create different points of entry for, for people, right? Um, but um, we had a meeting um, I don't know, last week with some folks that included some folks outside of the United States. And it, it was just as all of this was like kicking off. And it was just, it was so like energizing, you know, mm -hmm. just to be in that space to like think beyond the boundaries of the U.S. and really think about like, how do we make those connections um, across, across the globe with this focus on, on um, communities and the power of, of communities. So. Um, Awesome. Um, so as we sort of wrap up and um, think about where we're at, um, you know, one of the things that I've, I'm really encouraged by right now, at least uh, what I'm seeing in the field of community engagement is like people are really wanting to um, engage in the work around equity. I think there's a lot of support for that from what we're, we're hearing. Um, I think that will increase with everything that's happening now and really begin to have some deeper discussions around anti-blackness, um, racism, um, you know, all of the, the issues around inequity, but really centering around race um, as an important, like, first place that we need to, to start. So as you kind of look at the moment and thinking about the work that you do around racial justice and transformation, like what is your hope vision for where we take this, this moment? Um, yeah. Well, I'm, it's a, it's a beautiful invitation. Um, I, I, there's a couple of things that come to mind. So one is tomorrow. I'm not sure if you heard about the new commission that, 
legislation that Representative Barbara Lee from California is proposing and is going to go into the, it's an, it's, I read about it in my newsletter, yeah. um, but they have, she's called for the formation of a Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Commission. About time. <laughs> Can I get an amen? So um, I was really just blown away by this. And, you know, there's work that I, I did a long time ago with a tri caucus and congressional black caucus because congressional Hispanic caucus and the Asian Pacific um, Island caucus. So I'd like to think that some seeds were planted there in the work that happened with that group 2005, but I'm really inspired. Uh, I don't think a piece of legislation will change our and could do our healing, but it creates one really important pathway that I think has been missing in our national conversation. And um, I would say, so that's one piece of vision that I have that I would love to see what and how a role, I think of the National Apology Day that happened in Australia mm. under Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. And um, there was a lot of work that led up to it, but there was a National Day of Apology to Aboriginal peoples for the wrongs that were perpetrated by white Australians. And it was, it's, you know, I'm not saying it's a panacea, but it was a very important moment of the body of work that a nation had to do to get to that day. And I don't think that this work I don't know how it will take shape. I don't know what it will look like, but I think that there's some very hopeful possibility here for some work that we could do because we have not been able to tell the truth about our history to ourselves, let alone to each other. And I think this will be an important piece. I think I'd the say, 1619 Project tried to yes, create yes. a space for, for doing that. I love that. Everything that I've touched that has to do with that project has been mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and I think connected to that project, one of one of my hopes, because we do um, we do some workshops uh, specifically on what we call just apologies, and an apology is not the healing, um, but an apology, a bad apology, can reinflame, mm-hmm. and no apology can really prevent honest um, healing from happening with both parties. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the experience where you needed to do work to forgive someone, but they were no longer alive or they were no longer in your life. And you can still do that work, but there's something truly transformative when you can enter a space together and begin to do that work together. And so we have a whole workshop where we show like all these apologies, whether it was the Me Too movement or now around, you know, so-called racialized apologies. And and they're a mess. They are, there's nothing genuine or healing about them. They are, many of them CYA, many of them are like, that wasn't my intention, you know. Sorry you feel that way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I wish you didn't feel that way. Too bad for you. So yeah, we have a whole list of these patterns that we slip into when we can't tell we're good and we can't own the impacts of our actions. And so I have a vision that there would be national movement to really own what has happened, to really know what it means to do an apology and to really get communities together where wrongs have happened across all layers of oppression to really do the healing. And it's different than, you know, restorative justice work where, where that, that is not the purpose of restorative justice work. And I think people get confused with it, but it's truly a healing process of apology and forgive forgiveness for justice, basically sake. And so that's where I would really love to see that work happen. I, I, 
been invited before the pandemic, was invited to do some of that work with one of the major um, city bureaus that contributed to gentrification and displacement in the African-American community. And um, so it's possible that we will, after the pandemic, pick up that work. And this will be my first sort of test case on a larger scale to do this in the community in Portland, where I live, where there's much need for this work before people can feel like they can trust again and really invest in the relationships that are necessary to, to heal our communities. And how do we do that in, I mean, I think, you know, what we've seen the last four years has been an increase in like hate crimes and the amount of like racial incidences and the sort of um, increase in these white supremacy groups and, you know, incidences on campuses and, and those sorts of things. But, where, where does that happen? <laughs> <laughs> so the question is, if you were going to say, what, what would be the thing you'd want me to speak to? Um, like, how do we do that when we're seeing this increase in, in this other space of, like, hate? Um, that's, you know, also, like, there's a lot of fanning of that happening uh, in our politics, right? right now or the sort of law and order rhetoric around around this and so um how do uh, i i guess maybe is there a way to bring those folks into into that i like to think there is i premise my work on the fact that there can be and what it will take marisol is us getting close to them. I know it is exactly. There's some very, there's a be very beautiful piece of, of reading that you, um, about a man who left the white nationalist, white supremacy organization that he was born and raised into, um, working class kid ended up getting an opportunity to go to college and built a relationship with a man of color. And everything about that close relationship flew in the face of every piece of misinformation that he had been indoctrinated into as a white person under, you know, white supremacist, openly white supremacist household. And the truth is getting close to him is no different. Getting close to Amy Cooper is no different. Like if we don't build these relationships, it's, there's no guarantee that it will shift. But the truth is staying separate, believing the fear, um, cannot change our system. There is no them. They carry internalized white supremacy as I carry internalized white supremacy. My patterns of assimilation better than my own people trying to be good, um, perform in a certain way that's acceptable to assimilated white society. It's a continuum, but it's not different and I think we fail to understand. We, we want to demonize a group of people who are simply showing the edges of patterns and hurts that all white people carry and have internalized. And we've made, we've deemed some more acceptable than others because we don't feel as threatened by them. But the truth is all, all of us, including them, are threatened by all of those patterns. And I cannot guarantee safety. None of us can. Yeah. Safety can't be the goal. It can't be the goal. Well, Nancy, thanks so much. I always learn 
so much from our conversations and I feel like I always get challenged and in good, in good ways that help me stretch um, where I'm at and, and what I'm trying to do. So thank you for, for sharing um, with our um, network. Thank you for um, doing the work that you do. It's, it's so necessary. And um, the choice that you make to, to put yourself in, in that line um, is, is very much appreciated. And I hope that folks can um, get to know you and your work more. So where can they find out about the stuff that you have going on? Yeah, thank you. I want to just acknowledge the beautiful, sweet friendship, sisterhood connection that I have with you, Marisol, and how easy and open I feel to get to speak with you and to talk about this with you. So I hope others have enjoyed it half as much as I have, which because I love any chance I can to be around your mind and connect with you. Um, so a couple things I'll say. Um, the best way to get in touch with us is through our website which is ljist.com, logist or Lgist, some people say. Um, and if you sign up for our newsletter, that's really the place where we put out the most um, uh, current information about things that we're offering. Um, and also I, I write pieces and there's articles and things like that. You can also check our archives for blog posts. And I do want to highlight that um, if you want to learn more about our thinking around the work that white people need to do to heal from racism and internalized white supremacy. We're going to be having a public, virtual public workshop. So we won't be gathering in person, as I mentioned, um, uh, Tuesday, September 15, 16, 17. So this is giving folks a lot of time to think about how to organize your life to block out 10, 30, 10 to 12.30 for those three mornings in a row. Um, and those are... Time zone. Sorry, yeah, those are Pacific time zones, 10 to 12.30, exactly. So um, the registration is open now. We just opened it because we're almost sold out for our next public workshop, which is happening um, June 15, 16, 17, which is our virtual transformational... I'm sorry, 16, 17, 18, which is our June transformational relationship offering. So we, we're going to keep doing one a quarter. We'll have different topics that people can plug in and get a sense of. Um, so I'm hoping people will join us, follow us. We're on Instagram and Facebook. Those are the places we live. I'm... I know politically it's incorrect not to be on Twitter, but um, it's just not been a, a medium that served us. So we, we are not there. So, yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much. I uh, appreciate it. And um, hopefully we'll have more opportunities to connect and kind of share and build this work together. I look forward to it. Thanks again, thank Marisol. So we're back. Folks had a chance to listen to um, the interview that I, I did with Nancy, the conversation that I had. So I don't know. Any thoughts, reflections, things that stood out um, to you? A ton of that resonated with me, really. I mean, I just I like her so much more and more every time I hear from her. I think that um she gave words to a lot of feelings I have not had words for around how I've seen some white people participate in anti-racist work and I'm guilty of myself, I'm sure. 
um, in ways that were really helpful in terms of framing and thinking about it. I feel so strongly that truth and healing has to be a part of what we do. And we've just never taken that step in this country. Um, it was good to hear that. And I had also seen the bill that she was referring to, and I'm Mm -hmm. just so excited at even the possibility that this could actually happen here. Yeah. Yeah. The, I think partly because, um, I'm from basically the same era as Nancy, like, I think we graduated college the same year or something. And as I said earlier, so I, you know, when I was 15 years old, a friend of mine and I got on a bus, went to Washington, D.C. Jesse Jackson had organized this march for peace, jobs and freedom. Mid 80s, I was involved in uh, divestment uh, work on my own campus. I went to the big uh, march in New York City that I don't remember how many people it was, some colossal number of people. And I think um, I just had a certain like overdeveloped comfort in being on the right side of things. And, you know, some of it, it was my mother's professional work was in fair housing. She was a professional discrimination fighter. Um, I, whatever. It just seemed like we had the right views on this issue and we were doing the right things and it was all good. And I told this story a couple of years ago at a Minnesota campus compact event, but I remember, so when I was in grad school, this is a little bit of a long story, but I'm going for it. Uh, when I was in grad school, I was TAing a course um, in the political science department at the University of Minnesota. And, you know, I was grading all these papers for the students. I didn't know who the students were. It was like, you know, big lecture course, I would grade the papers. And the professor called me in um, and said, I have something a little bit difficult to discuss with you. And he was all dancing around something. I was like, I don't know what this is going to be about. Turned out that uh, and African-American student had had come to him very concerned about the comments that I'd written on the paper and felt that they were essentially racist, that she was being demeaned for her writing on the basis of race. And I knew that I didn't know who the student was. There was nothing about her name that signaled. And I just felt like I'm cool with this because I know that I didn't know that she was African-American. So it couldn't have been based on race. And so I was comfortable with it. And I don't know when it was, but some subsequent time years later, it suddenly like clicked in for me that I was not uh, absolved of responsibility because I didn't know the student's race. I had written comments without asking the question, who might be on the receiving end of these and how would these feel? And what I'd written was essentially like, hey, you're using a bunch of words that you don't understand very well. You should have a dictionary by your side. This was like a standard comment I would write. And I did not ask the question, how would this feel if you were from, you know, a member of a group that has been systematically and consistently demeaned for centuries? And this is what you read on your paper as an undergraduate student in a course in a new field where, of course, you're trying to find the right vocabulary and whatever. And you know, I, I, it was, it was a case where like, I just recognized that my own, um, sort of smugness about my position on issues of race made me feel like I didn't have to take responsibility for the things I had done. And I'm sure I do that over and over again, right? Like that, my point isn't like, so I learned not to do that anymore. My point is that I learned that I'm, I don't know in the moment when I'm doing that. In many cases, I'm sure sometimes I learn about it later. Sometimes I probably don't. And, you know, I think 
like learning uh, part of what I appreciate so much about what Nancy talks about is like, I don't spend my time thinking, therefore, that I'm a terrible person. I spend my time thinking that I aspire to be a good person, but that I need to recognize that that desire is not sufficient and that it takes a lot of work of thinking about the experiences of people whose experiences are very different from my own, listening to people, learning and realizing that I'm going to mess up and also that messing up uh, doesn't kind of disqualify me as a person who can try to do better and whatever. So, but I think it is like, uh, there's just the whole, like on the one end, sort of like not wanting to deal with this because it makes you feel guilty to the other end, sort of competitive wokeness, the, the way people's own emotional lives, uh, white people's own emotional lives like prevent people from doing stuff better that actually addresses the core issues like that, that just speaks to me in a really powerful way. Yeah. Um, what you just said reminds me of a, a post that I, um, put on Facebook and reads reminder to white people. You will continue, you will continue to mess up regarding race. So continue to be teachable, open to correction from POCs and vigilantly monitor yourself for defensiveness and white fragility. You never arrive as an ally. You must continually practice allyship. Um, And I feel like, especially in this field, there is a lot of that, uh, that, that goes on. And so, what I appreciate is like the sort of openness to, to talk about that, because I think even in our own conversations, they're like, especially in higher ed, when there's so much discussions about allyship and whatever, and the, the liberals and yes, we're down with this. And, you know, of course, we're against, you know, racism, but the ways that it gets practiced in the academy, um, how faculty of color are, are oftentimes snubbed. Um, there's this great um, sort of page on Twitter that um, developed its hashtag um, black in, in the ivory. And so it's, you know, black uh, faculty, mainly some uh, other people of, uh, of color uh, faculty sharing their stories of, of racism um, that they've experienced in, um, in in higher ed and i think that those stories are are so important and and someone posted like these are the ones that we feel safe to like put out there not to mention the ones that are actually you know that have hurt us so deeply that we can't um uh, put that put that up and you know again i I appreciate uh, Nancy so much and, and her work and like even her shift, right? Because like sort of first doing the work meant sort of making white people feel guilty and that actually if she wanted to to, to work on the issue of racism, like the work that, that needed to happen with, with white people. And and she does work and creates other space for, for people of color, but even taking on um, what I see is oftentimes a, a, that that burden of, of working in that space with white folks as they're kind of in their process uh, is is to me really really courageous and beautiful in the ways that she's kind of made that shift and the the tools that she uses in her trainings to get to a place where folks can um, through diet through conversation like release right that the, the importance of release as a as a way to like have these hard conversations do this do this work and expel that so that you can make kind of room for more um and just personally like 
the the challenge that I face is like um, I would say like making ma- making that transition to like be in that space to, to, to hear some of that and and do that work particularly with with white folks and and the kind of like centeredness you have to have in order to do that and not be um, drained and, and, and depleted. Um, and I'm, I always come away like feeling like she, she moves me in, in, in different ways. She makes me think about things in, in, in different ways. And for my own work, right, um, uh, and thinking about the work that needs to happen within community color, uh, communities of color with our own um, sort of diverse experiences with racism, but also, also anti-blackness. Um, and what what does it take to move to that like truth and reconciliation uh, piece? Um, because you know, really, this uh, issue around sort of um, police brutality and, and the targeting of of black lives um, is only the tip of the iceberg in terms of like the you know real issues around structural racism that that we face, and and um, I feel like higher ed also has to come to, to that. Like in this moment, it is, it is the sort of police systems that are being looked at, but there are also um, education has notoriously been used as uh, a mechanism for for um, exclusion built on, on the same uh, on the same premise. So there also has to be a reckoning, I think, that that comes with with that. And and even our field in the way that we've structured um, engagement um, the use of communities of color uh, to teach diversity, right? I, I was, I, I thought about like all the work that I was doing on my dissertation and sort of the ways that community engagement was used around multicultural education and and the implications of of all of that. And so, I feel like that the the events of the past few weeks and the conversation with uh, with Nancy really just made me think of like how much work is ahead of us. Um, and, you know, we can't be weary for for the kind of fight ahead, right? Or the, the movement ahead that we've got to figure out how to, how we stay in, in this marathon and how we continue to find spaces of like rest and healing, support, reconciliation, um, release to be able to actually continue to do the work that needs to, to be done and that we're not creating photo ops or YouTube videos uh, splattering Black Lives Matter without actually thinking about the real kind of change that, that needs to, to, to happen. So, I don't know, it was powerful for me. You know, I'm uh, I'm really glad that you uh, that you had that conversation. And, you know, I, we, we look behind the curtain. Campus Compact was scheduled to do a bunch of work with Nancy in Seattle at our conference, which then got canceled. And um, I look forward to when we can actually do that in person and and have the conversations we need to have. And I think, you know, for me, moving forward, one of the things that I just try to keep focused on is exactly what you just said, which is um, not doing this in a photo op way, but figuring out 
practical actions that we can connect to our stated values that make a difference. And I do think that's not um, those are not transparent. They take a lot of work to understand what those actions are that actually make a difference. And um, yeah, that's that's where my head is, like thinking about how to do that in ways that you know, change campus compact that change the way we engage with our member institutions to, to push broader change. Um, but it's, it's, there's a, like will matters, but will is insufficient. And so linking the will to, 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 to action again, I I don't think it's, it's not a straightforward question, but it feels like that's where we have a lot of work to do. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, part of the process, right? That, that acknowledgement, uh, uh, piece, and then, um, thinking about what we do from, from there. So I'm glad you said that. Cause I have tons of ideas and we'll talk about that, <laughs> that more and generate that, uh, collectively, but, yes, we um, will. Yes, we will. <laughs> but, um, yeah. And I think, I think if we don't take advantage of this opportunity, right? Like it's, it's unfortunate how we got here, but there is a moment, right? And if you don't utilize the moment to make fundamental shifts and change, then um, what was the sacrifice of the lives, all the lives that had to be lost to to get us to this awakening, right? Um, And so, um, yeah, I think it's a culmination of things between the pandemic, um, the for me, honestly, um, and this is where kind of I think Nancy's title of we're, we are not OK for and the title that we're, we have for this episode and, and her um, newsletter that we'll be connecting um, or sharing the link for is it was the sort of what came out about Ahmaud Aubrey um, in Georgia. Right. And the the video and um, the, the, the details. It was. um what we were learning about the uh, Breonna Taylor um, case, the the video, the Amy Cooper one in in Central Park in New York, where um, you saw like the way in which um, this man's black body was weaponized, was going to be weaponized to create the situation that we had seen in these and then that we eventually saw in George Floyd. And it was just like, it, to, to me, like the sort of ways that those were back to back. And these are, you know, four hundreds, thousands of, of stories of, of this, this happening, but the capturing of, of that. And then the look on the officer's face as he's on George Floyd's neck and like the people are like, stop it. He can't breathe. He's saying he can't breathe. And like nothing, nothing is, is there. And other officers standing like the call out for his mother, like just all of that was, I think just enough. Like it was a call for enough. Like there has to be something. And so we, we can't make light of that to do photo ops and not make change. Like we do really have to do fundamental change and, and, and shifts. And I'm that piece while emotionally like exhausting, like is so worth what we can build, I think after. So um, we are not okay. We haven't been okay. Uh, I think from, from the founding of this nation and, and thinking about the ways in which um, our history has 
sort of held uh, opportunity and slavery uh, as 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 uh, two things that co- could coexist at the same time. And so now we actually have um, the power to live into the ideals that um, we have espoused but have not practiced equally uh, amongst people. And that piece uh, makes me hopeful. Amen. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know the young people. Oh my god. Like they are amazing. They are amazing. They've uh, they've been showing us a lot for a number of years. Uh and I I think it it is funny we still have the idea somehow that um that, that there's a problem in the world where young people don't care enough young people. And there are things about, I do think there are ways we need to educate better, right? In all sorts of ways and give to, but it is also true that young people, you know, for a pretty solid chunk of time now have been acting and voting much more than they had been and showing up for things and leading things. And uh, yeah, I think we, we have to figure out a different story to tell about young people because it's complicated in various ways, but uh, they're not just sitting on the sidelines. No, no, no. Well, I think uh, that's our time uh, right now. And we've got more podcasts coming um, that we'll uh, we'll be talking more about um, racial justice issues um, and really excited to to be able to share um, this uh, with us with our with our audience Um, any last kind of thoughts or comments Emily I don't think so well Andrew just uh, we got a lot of work to do yeah yeah Um, So that's it for us at Compact Nation. Thanks for listening. And as always, don't forget to rate and review us. And if you have any questions or suggestions, email us at uh, podcast uh, podcast at compact.org or chime in on our social media. I do want to plug two things. Um, One is that we have a great uh, summer webinar series um, taking place um, that's focused on resources around COVID-19 and preparing for the fall um, semester quarter. So check that out at compact.org slash webinar uh, series no space Um, and then we will be uh, releasing soon so be on the lookout for it um, a training curriculum for faculty this this summer called fusion that's looking at community engagement and online service learning and so um, just be on the lookout for that we're happy to share that we'll be having three um, sessions um, or cohorts this summer uh, to get folks prepared for whatever fall may turn out to be whether online or or in person um that's it for for me thanks all thanks bye Compact Nation podcast comes to you from Campus Compact's national headquarters in the Leather District of Boston, Massachusetts. Our hosts are Marisol Morales, Emily Shields, and me, Andrew Seligson. Our producer is Molly Altiorem Leeper. Music is by Andrew Savage. You can find more of his music at andrewsavage.net. As always, you can find us online at compact.org slash podcast or on social media at hashtag compactnationpod. Thanks for listening. I am the podcat. Ha <laughs> ha!